Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, welcome to all of you, and uh, thank you in particular to the Journal of Law and Politics for making this event possible, for bringing it together. I mean, I love any chance to be with people this smart, and here we're seated at one table, so um, uh, thanks to all four of you for taking part today. Um, I want to set the, sort of a note of history and context of sort of where we came from, and our p panelists will have a good deal to say about where we are now. When you look at the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when you look at the uh, Virginia Constitution of 1776, the, the, the one that got all this started, um, it's celebrated even today for its Declaration of Rights, George Mason's famous Declaration of Rights, which uh, is a document that set the model for the other states, the Federal Bill of Rights, and indeed the um, French Declaration of Rights, the man and the citizen. So it was a, a wonderful thing that Virginia contributed to to world constitutionalism, I would say that one should not celebrate the rest of that first constitution. The frame of government part was essentially uh, backward looking. It pr protected or preserved the uh, property requirement for voting. If you didn't own property, you didn't have a chance to vote. Most people who served in the military couldn't uh, even could, could not vote. And uh, as far as redistricting went, uh, it was wildly malapportioned. And let me read what Thomas Jefferson, you, you f you'll forgive me for quoting Thomas Jefferson and sort of de, de rigueur around here. Uh, it's actually written into my contract that I have to <laughs> say. So, you know, so this is my obligatory Jeffersonian reference. Um, this is in his notes on the state of Virginia, which he wrote in response to queries from a French uh, secretary. He says, the majority of men in the state who pay and fight for its support are unrepresented in the legislature. That's the uh, franchise side. As to apportionment, among those who share the representation, the shares are very unequal. Thus, the county of Warwick, with only 100 fighting men, has an equal representation with the county of Loudoun, which has 1,746, so that every man in Warwick has as much influence of the government as 17 men in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Loudoun. Um, so Jefferson at that early stage in our development put his finger on what I would refer to as the, the, the t twin pillars of democratic government, which is one is the franchise. Who gets to vote? Important question. The other pillar, equally important I think, is once you know who, who votes, how do you divide up the districts? How do you decide how much uh, each district will be worth and what those districts will, will look like? Well, if, if we were to look at the successive Virginia constitutions, 1830, 1851, 1870, you see a progressive broadening of the franchise so that by the post-Civil War period, you have something like a universal male suffrage. Obviously, by that point, women had not yet gotten the vote. But there was a significant setback with the 1902 Constitution. That was a retrogressive post-Reconstruction Constitution which set out with a deliberate aim of disenfranchising as many of the black citizens of Virginia as possible, and they did an incredibly effective job. They pretty well wiped out the African-American vote. And that is part of the basis of what became the Bird Machine, which controlled Virginia politics for decades after, after that point. So you had this back and forth on the franchise side of it. Uh, by the 1960s, a, a decade of extraordinary development, 
You had, um, at the federal level, initiatives which uh, helped protect the vote in Virginia, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and, of course, the famous one-person, one-vote decisions which began to move towards uh, equalizing uh, districting and having the same number of voters in each district. But that still left open the question of partisan gerrymandering. Even if people have access to the ballot and even if the electoral districts are even in number, that still leaves open the question what those districts look like, how the lines will be drawn. And that's something the uh, Virginia Commission on Constitutional Revision sought to do something about. I had the honor of serving as their executive director. I was the sort of chief draftsman, as it were. The elder statesmen, people like Lewis Powell and Hardy Dillard, Colgate Darden, and some others were the ones who were sort of deciding what the general shape of that constitution ought to be. And one thing they added to it quite deliberately was a requirement that electoral districts, both for Congress and for the state legislature, be contiguous and compact. Now, obviously those words are not self-defining, but they're also not meant to be uh, simply advice to the legislature. They're meant to be constitutional mandates for the legislature to uh, to honor. Well, that, that was part of a document which in was meant to be a progressive document. It was meant to put the 1902 legacy behind us. It was meant to enhance the vote. It was meant to uh, repudiate massive resistance and, and other things. And when you think about the people who did the drafting I mentioned, I mean, Lewis Powell, who later sat on the US Supreme Court, uh, Hardy Dillard, who later sat on the World Court at The Hague, uh, Colgate Darden, who'd been UVA's president and a governor of Virginia. Oliver Hill, who was the leading civil rights attorney at that time in Virginia, an extraordinary group of people, and they didn't put in language like compact and contiguous uh, accidentally or without thought. It was, it was meant to be a very deliberate act. Well, of course, <laughs> the courts have, the, in effect, the final say as to what the language of a constitution finally means, no matter what its drafters thought they meant to do it. So when the cases began to get to the Supreme Court of Virginia in the 1990s and, and then about a decade later, there were two cases in the Virginia Supreme Court involving the requirement that districts be contiguous. And if you look at those cases, uh, they are deferential in the extreme. They're virtually abdicationist because they talk about uh, standards of review being anything that's fairly debatable. Uh, strong presumption of legislative validity. The legislative action will be set aside only, and if I'm quoting, plainly repugnant to the Constitution. Well, <laughs> this just begins to see, you law students remember cases like Wickard versus Filburn, some of those post-New Deal cases where they, basically the Supreme Court said, whatever the legislature does is fine with us. That's pretty much what these Virginia cases amount to. For example, one of the districts in one of those two cases involved, uh, it, it lay in the Hampton Roads area. You know what Hampton Roads looks like. It's the world's largest natural anchorage. And the district, one, one district started over in Portsmouth on one side of the bay and ended up in Hampton on the other side of the bay. And the Virginia Supreme Court faced with a question of is that contiguity said, oh yes, because the two parts of the district are joined by a body of water. 
I mean, Rick, give me a break. I understand if, it, if it's the Rivanna River that runs through it, you can practically step across it. But if it's Hampton Roads, if it's, if it's Chesapeake Bay, the notion that it's joined by a body of water does, well, you get the point. I mean, you read these opinions, you say, this is a court that simply does not want to second guess the legislature on a core responsibility of drawing legislative districts. And the, the court indeed cited precedents from an earlier period, decisions that were in place before the 1971 Constitution came into play. So you could, I think you get the sense that these are, the, the court just wasn't gonna stand up to the legislature in that case. There's then a more recent case, the Veselon case, involving the other half of that prescription, which is the requirement that districts be compact. We've, I talked about contiguity, and in this case, the court showed no more willingness it was a longer, more involved decision, but it all adds up basically to saying, well, we're, we're going to trust the legislature. We'll be hearing more about that particular case in a minute from, uh, I think, from Rebecca Green. That's the Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Supreme Court. What about the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, you may know something about the decisions that have come out there, and they, again, as far as the court itself goes, show no particular willingness to become involved in uh, giving redress for partisan gerrymandering, because they've had egregious cases coming from states like Pennsylvania and Texas. The Texas case, for example, was one where the uh, legislature managed to flip six congressional seats from one party to the other in one, <laughs> one redistricting round, which was a case of uh, just arrogant part, uh, partisan gerrymandering. The justices were all over the map. Some wanted to say, oh, this is a, in the technical sense, a political question, which is to say non-justiciable, that the case not, ought not to be here in the first place. Some of the others wouldn't go quite that far, but Justice Kennedy, for example, who had, a, as you know, often a, a habit of kind of wringing his hands about cases like this, basically said he couldn't see a workable test, and that maybe if a case that was really bad enough to come along, he might be willing to provide a remedy. Well, if the Texas case wasn't bad enough, it's hard to imagine one that's really much worse. So um, we will not see from the U.S. Supreme Court in the partisan gerrymandering arena something like Baker versus Carr or Reynolds versus Sims. Uh, with the Roberts Court, I mean, the case, I, these cases I cited were earlier in this century uh, with the present composition of the court with Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the, on the bench. Uh, it's certainly inconceivable that the court will be more likely to be muscular in stepping in to do something about this problem than it has been so far. So there you have the, the landscape, the background of federal law, but specifically the context in Virginia itself, and it sort of sets us up for the question, okay, if you care to do something about it, uh, what, that, what might that something be? And I hope that by the end of our discussion today, we'll go away with a, at least the beginning of an answer to that, to that question. So thank you very much. Uh, so uh, my name is Mark Aber, and I, uh, as the litigator on the panel, thought I would uh, start off not talking necessarily about Virginia, um, but uh, some of my experiences over the past uh, 10 years uh, litigating redistricting cases. And in thinking of the sort of theme I wanted to talk about, I was 
thinking about uh, the new census citizenship question that's uh, in litigation and the rationale that was offered for that, which was that uh, because citizenship information is necessary to Section 2 cases under the Voting Rights Act, that this, this is why the administration uh, says we need to add this question to the census so that they can bring more Section 2 cases to help minority voting rights. And uh, I think a lot of people see that as a pretextual reason for adding the question and the evidence that's been administered in court so far shows that, that you know, that is not that is not the actual reason that this was put forward. And it caused me to reflect on uh, experiences I've had uh, in cases uh, over the past few years where pretext uh, is given as the rationale for a redistricting decision made in the legislature. And so I want to talk about three examples of that that I've seen over the past few years, uh, North Carolina, uh, Alabama, and Texas. And I guess as some uh, for those who may not be familiar with the legal background of these cases, uh, the Constitution precludes states from using race as the predominant factor in redistricting, uh, and that's what's called the Shaw claim uh, after Shaw v. Reno, a case from, I think, the 90s. Um, but legislatures can and must consider race to the extent that the Voting Rights Act requires it and the drawing of uh, districts under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And so that's the case when uh, a majority, uh, minority district can be drawn in an area um, and the evidence uh, shows that th those voters vote cohesively and have historically been prevented from electing their preferred candidate uh, by what is usually the white majority in the area or white block voting. Uh, and that the totality of the circumstances uh, uh, all indicate that there's a history of discrimination that requires them to uh, have that district drawn to protect their opportunity to elect their preferred candidate. Uh, so that's sort of the broad strokes legal landscape. Uh, and what we experienced in litigating uh, both uh, North Carolina and the Alabama uh, cases, uh, the cases are North Carolina's uh, Cooper versus Harris, and in Alabama, the Alabama Legislative Black Caucus versus Alabama. And these are redistricting cases coming out of the 2011 round of redistricting. Um, that ended up being decided, I think, in 2014 and 2016, which, as an aside, shows you how long it takes to litigate a redistricting case uh, and why um, only relying on uh, Section 2 as opposed to a preclearance regime uh, is not a good solution, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but uh, so what we saw in North Carolina is uh, there was litigation surrounding uh, a district, uh, Congressional District 1, which for 20 plus years had been held by the preferred candidate of the minority community uh, in that district. And, and black voters constituted, I think, between 46 and 48 percent of the vote or percentage of the district um, historically, but not were never a majority of the district. Um, and so. Uh, in 2011, the North Carolina legislature, the same legislature that passed sort of an omnibus um, voter law that the Fourth Circuit struck down and, and said that it had targeted black voters with surgical precision, uh, that same legislature decided that in order, or alleged that in order to comply with the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, they needed to draw the first congressional district as a majority black district. They had a mechanical 50% plus one target that they uh, put in place. 
um, and did no sort of analysis under Section 2, under the three-prong test um, or the totality of the circumstances. They just said, you know, if we can, we have to draw a majority black district. And that had the effect of packing black voters in that district and taking them out of nearby districts where they may have had influence uh, on the results in, in that district. Um, and this is one area where, you know, from my perspective, the, the Supreme Court ended up on the right side of this, that they, they said, no, uh, you know, you can't, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act does not require you to draw a district if the white voters have not been preventing the minority voters from achieving electoral success, which, you know, for 20 years they, they had done. So um, in North Carolina, uh, you know, in the Cooper case, the court struck that down and said that, you know, even if you, even if you were doing that in good faith, which all evidence suggested that that was not the case, um, that you have to have an act, that's not a sufficient uh, basis in law or, or in fact, uh, if you know that the, the minority group is already succeeding. And so that was struck down and has led to a case that um, CLC is litigating now, which is the partisan gerrymandering case uh, coming from North Carolina, because after this was struck down, the legislature said, okay, we can't use the Voting Rights Act as our reason. We are just going to announce on the floor that we want to have 10 Republican districts and three Democratic districts, and that is how, why we are drawing these lines. Um, so I'm perhaps a little bit more optimistic because I, <laughs> we were counsel in the case, but um, I, I won't deign to say what I think will happen there. But uh, so from the pretextual uh, standpoint, North Carolina is an example of uh, the pretext not working. Um, another example of the pretext not working is the Alabama redistricting, um, which is uh, Alabama Legislative Black Caucus versus Alabama, I think it was 2014 that it was decided. Um, and in Alabama, this is a different provision of the Voting Rights Act that was issued. Um, this is Section 5, which I think folks know um, is inoperative at the moment because of the Shelby County decision. But Section 5 uh, basically required that uh, states could not allow what they called retrogression from the ability to elect that minority groups had in a pre-existing map. Um, and so it looked to whether or not they were functionally uh, able to elect their preferred candidate under the current plan. And if the new plan would cause them not to be able to do that, that was a violation of Section 5 and, and it wouldn't be pre-cleared. And so Alabama had a slew of state legislative districts that had anywhere from 70 to 77 percent uh, that were uh, black population. And the legislature uh, decided that they would have a fixed target uh, or sort of a racial quota that uh, those percentages could not slip at all, that they thought that they would be at risk of a Section 5 violation if there were not 75% of the district uh, comprised of black residents. And of course, that is just not borne out by the evidence. You, that, that is extreme packing and uh, you know, the evidence of actual election results did not show that that percentage was necessary. In fact, <clears throat> significantly less of a population of black uh, voters in the district was necessary and sufficient to elect the preferred candidate of that community. And so the Supreme Court said there too, you know, no, you can't set a numerical target um, and say that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act required you to do that, having undertaken no analysis to see whether that was actually borne out by the evidence of election results in the state. Uh, and so that sort of set, actually the Alabama case set the stage for the North Carolina case for the court to find that both of those were uh, partisan or 
uh, excuse me, racial gerrymanders, um, and sent that back to, to unremand to be uh, a new remedy to be put in place. And so these are two examples of pretext not working um, you know, uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, one that I consider to be a very unfortunate uh, situation where pretext uh, carried the day was in the Texas redistricting. And um, I was uh, trial counsel in the case uh, at the 2017 trial, which was about the 2013 map. Um, and Texas is the poster child of, back to the side I had, of Section 2 being insufficient. Um, it is now 2019, and we just filed what perhaps will be our last brief in this case, in the district court uh, under Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act to try to get Texas brought uh, back into the preclearance regime uh, because of a, what was a very terrible um, series of laws that started with the 2011 plan that um, the three-judge court, which included uh, Judge Jerry Smith from the Fifth Circuit, who, you know, is not, um, the Fifth Circuit is obviously a, a more conservative court. Judge Smith is among the most conservative of the Fifth Circuit judges. He found, uh, he agreed with the three-judge panel that there was extreme intentional racial discrimination in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area under the plan that Texas enacted. Uh, that plan was not pre-cleared. Um, the three-judge court in San Antonio found that it had all sorts of Shaw violations and intentional vote discrimination, or intentional racial discrimination violations. What happened was uh, a, a very clever um, move by the legislature. Uh, after the plan they enacted was uh, put on ice by the courts, um, they came to a compromise uh, because there was no plan in place. It was 20, February of 2012, uh, and the remedial plan that the court had adopted, the Supreme Court said, no, go back to the drawing board. You can't draw it that way. You have to respect state legislative choices. So by February, there was no plan for the, for the primaries or for the November election. So there was about a two-week period where the court said, okay, you all need to, like, we have to have a plan. <laughs> we, have, we can't not have any districts and have an election. So the parties came to a compromise, fixed some of the most glaring flaws in the map, um, but on a bunch of other areas around the state, uh, the, the parties said, okay, we're just going to let this stand, and we'll all agree that this is interim, this is a preliminary plan, this is just to get us through this election so that we can have an election. Uh, after that happened, uh, the legislature then, right before Shelby County, they knew Shelby County was coming down, uh, they repealed the plan that they had enacted the previous year, uh, and passed as the legislature's plan, the plan that the court had blessed as an interim plan. And then said, well, we couldn't have had as our purpose that we were intending to discriminate. We were intending to comply with the court's order. Uh, and we couldn't have had as our purpose uh, using racial data to draw these districts that made it through in the compromise plan because you know, the purpose was just to adopt the plan that the court had approved. Um, and so we took discovery, we had depositions, um, we had expert witnesses, and we had a trial. And at the end of the trial, um, the three-judge panel, again, unanimously uh, made a factual finding that that was a pretextual explanation, that the court had explained that uh, several of the districts uh, were very close calls, and on, at a preliminary injunction stage, they just there wasn't enough evidence in the record for the court to make a finding that there had been racial gerrymandering, 
Um, but upon a full trial, uh, the court concluded that the evidence showed that those lines were drawn uh, predominantly on the basis of race and without a justification under the Voting Rights Act. Um, and unfortunately, uh, despite that uh, unanimous decision, including Judge Smith, um, as, as to the factual basis for why the legislature passed this new plan, um, the Supreme Court ruled that, as Texas uh, advocated, that the purpose here was just to comply with the court's interim order. And so how can you be discriminating or using race as the basis if you just passed a court-approved plan? Um, that it's, from my perspective, it's both wrong, having gone to the trial is very frustrating, having been worked on this case. Um, it's wrong. It also sets up a very dangerous precedent that um, discourages compromise in emergency situations. Um, parties or plaintiffs are going to be much less willing to uh, agree to a temporary solution if they know that the legislature can then just adopt that and get around the motives that actually uh, were the basis for the line drawing. Um, so that I think uh, uh, Abbott versus Perez is the name of the case. I think it uh, is both uh, unfortunate for allowing pretext to win the day, um, but also for just dismissing factual findings of a, of a district court that sat through a trial, um, heard the evidence, and didn't get the respect of the clearly erroneous standard of evidence. So those are my three examples of pretext. Uh, I, don't, I hope that this isn't the, the 2020 wave of how litigation goes in terms of uh, rationales offered by states, but stay tuned. I'm sure uh, we'll see more of it. So uh, I would love to give Mark less work to do <laughs> by actually getting some real reform, at least in Virginia. And I think what we're, we're talking about can be a model going forward. But let me back up, because how do you solve this nearly intractable problem where politicians will say, oh, I didn't do it because they're black, I did it because they're Democrats. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't, you know, oh, we did it just to comply with the quarter. Like kind of all the stuff that, that makes it incredibly frustrating, yet we know exactly what they're doing, is they're trying to make sure they get reelected, right? And, the, and if you look to North Carolina and you look to Maryland, it is partisans trying to make sure their party gets reelected. Um, of different parties, for, for the record. And uh, for Virginia, in 2011, we actually had, for the first time in our history, we are, we are usually a one-party kind of state, uh, and we might be headed back that way uh, shortly. But in a brief moment in 2011, there was a Republican governor who had talked a little bit about redistricting reform on the campaign trail, and then there was a uh, Democratic-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House I was in my last year of law school um, taking classes with Professor Green, and I naively thought this was the perfect time to get redistricting reform, right? Because no one party's gonna dominate it. And instead, what we got was a smoky backroom deal that's nothing but an incumbent protection racket between the two parties. The Senate Democrats gerrymandered their chamber, the House Republicans gerrymandered their chamber, they passed the other guy's map in exchange for safe passage of their own, it's how you escape a prisoner's dilemma. <laughs> it was, um, disappointing to say the least um, but but nonetheless there's also uh, there's what we've seen between you know then and now are a bunch of states address redistricting in different ways right and in every way every state deserves something like I'll, I'll talk about Iowa in a second but if it, if it was like a, a, a redistricting video game Iowa would be level one right California might be level 10 because I was pretty easy to redistrict and California is pretty complex uh, but in in all of that what we've seen is we've seen this 
increase awareness of people just knowing about this issue, uh, an increase of citizens caring. I've had legislators tell me when I first started uh, at One Virginia four years ago, Brian, no one gives a damn about redistricting reform, and that's just not true anymore, right? Um, they thought the reason they've been able to get away with it for so long is because they thought you didn't care, and they were largely right, but that's starting to change. And in fact, we saw last year five states pass redistricting reform. Uh, I don't think all of it is like spectacular redistricting reform, but it is better than what Virginia's status quo is, right? You saw Ohio do it, Utah, Missouri, Colorado, Michigan, and uh, did I get them all right? I think I might have got them all, yeah, five. Um, and they all passed, and they passed overwhelmingly with bipartisan support and for different reasons. Um, so in Virginia last summer, we, were, we had been for years throwing things up on the wall in the legislature to see what stuck. We had tried just a criteria approach, like let's just put more defined criteria than compact and contiguous in our constitution. And then we realized that nothing the legislature does is ever going to be overturned by a Virginia State Supreme Court. They're gonna give extreme deference to these guys no matter how blatantly they didn't follow the constitution. Um, so, okay, so we've gotta find a better way to do it. And so after, being really frustrated by a lot of our, our attempts, but having some success and, and listening closely over four years, we pulled together a wonderful group of 10 individuals uh, in a citizen drafting committee. And on, the, on the, the far right and the far left of me is, are two of those folks, Professor Green and Professor Howard, were excellent parts of this. But I wanna highlight something else that came about that. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, the former Attorney General of Virginia, served on this commission as well. And he had, he had been a redistricting reform supporter since he got in the state Senate in, I think, 2003. Uh, and was always very, very good on this issue. And I've gotten to know him a little bit through this job. And he was, we invited him to serve on it. He agreed. And he called me like two weeks before they started meeting. And he said, Brian, I want to tell you I've evolved on redistricting reform. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> that's, the, that's like the one thing I really don't want you to evolve on. And he said, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to go from the frying pan into the fire. Like, not that the current system is good, but that you could create an independent commission that would have even more problems or different problems, and perhaps because you can't unelect the independent commission, uh, in more intractable problems. And I think that was really uh, a wise advice. And he, he, to his credit, Mr. Cuccinelli said, Brian, if you want me not to serve on this thing, I'm happy to just bow out gracefully and say I had a conflict or something. And, and I said, no, 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 actually, please come, because that's exactly the question we have to answer in our legislature. Because unlike Utah, Colorado, Michigan, and Missouri, we don't get to go around the 140 members of the General Assembly. We have to go through them. Uh, and that question is really essential to addressing that. It's not the only part, right? It's necessary but not sufficient. You have to be right on the policy, but also then have the political moment strike to get it all done, and we, we had that. Um, so I think what the, the commission got to work, the number of meetings, I was uh, really just privileged to be uh, a part of them and to, to listen and help answer questions when I could. Uh, the proposal they came up with is embodied in uh, a a bill introduced or a resolution introduced this session, SJ 274. If you want to look it up on LIS, I think it's a very good proposal. It's all citizens commission. It's selected by a panel of retired circuit court judges from an open application process with a jury strike system because actually Ken Cuccinelli and Ward Armstrong, who was a former Democratic leader in the House, um, are two trial attorneys basically and they kind of set up that process which actually borrowed heavily from California though we don't say that a lot in Virginia um, you know lessons learned from there and I think what they had was really good um, what happened when we the rubber met the road in the General Assembly session is that bill or resolution 
died. I know you're shocked, right? It was a good proposal. That's probably why it died. Um, instead, uh, the Senate had a plan. They passed. The House had a plan uh, that they passed that evolved a lot really quickly. And then they went to conference committee. And two Saturdays ago, Virginia voted overwhelmingly 40 to nothing in the House and 83 to 15, sorry, 40 to nothing in the Senate, 83 to 15 in the House to pass the first resolution on redistricting reform to amend our Constitution. Um, it is not everything I want, but it is still, I think, pretty darn good. And let me give you a framework for how to think about this before I tell you what was in it if you don't already know. Um, if I said to you, hey, look, we've got redistricting reform, guys. It's, here's the plan. We're going to have um, somebody in the Department of Legislative Services draw up the maps, and they're going to have some criteria by which they have to do it, but that person's going to draw up the maps. And then whatever map that guy draws up will get sent to the General Assembly. And the, and the good news is the General Assembly won't get to amend it, but they just get an up or down vote, right? And if they approve it, that's the map. If they reject it, they can make some recommendations back to the guy, the map drawer. Um, and at least that's transparent, right? That would be good. Um, if it goes back and forth three times and the kids don't agree, mom and dad on the state Supreme Court can step in and settle the dispute. If I said that was our plan, I assume, and I'm seeing some snickers, you either know that that's what Iowa does or know that that doesn't sound very good, right? That there's like a, so many ways that could go wrong. What if that one guy turns out to be, you know, an evil political actor? Um, or what if he gets hit, he turns out to be great, but then gets hit by a bus and is replaced by an evil political actor? Or what if just the legislature is completely controlled by partisans who want to um, mess this thing up and don't want to let anything pass? Um, all of that said, Iowa is kind of the gold standard in redistricting, right? It's worked, and, and I, I say that not I say that not to make fun of Iowa, but to to highlight how important implementation is, right? And that's the the scenario we're in. So in Virginia, what we passed this uh, two Saturdays ago was a framework for a commission. Uh, it has. Uh, eight citizens and eight legislators, equally balanced, so one party can't get over on the other. You require six votes of each block of eight to pass a map, so that's a supermajority requirement, which addresses what goes wrong in Arizona. Um, but So there, all of that in and of itself basically eliminates partisan gerrymandering. If we just did that and nothing else, we would, make, we would be better than North Carolina or Maryland, which I think is something as Virginians we should all strive to do. Um, <laughs> But that's not all that's in there. There are, um, there are some other important parts to it. Um, one is the citizen selection process. How did the citizens get on? We, they borrowed our five retired circuit court judges approach. Um, the legislature will recommend at least 16 people for those eight slots, um, and the judges will make the final determination of who gets on it. In addition, there's open data and open meeting requirements, which I think are vital, and Professor Green can probably talk more about that. Um, and then there's also an additional line, in, it has, a, has basically a recitation of the, of the uh, equal rights clause, the, the VRA kind of language, and something. it says, in addition, it says, um, districts shall be drawn where practicable to allow my, uh, racial and ethnic communities to elect a candidate of their choice. That's groundbreaking in Virginia law. That would be a Virginia Voting Rights Act summation. And there's the question of what does where practicable means, but we'll leave that out. Um, so that's the framework. Here's what's missing. Um, what's missing in there is a top of the funnel for citizen engagement. Right? How do you get citizens to even apply to be selected by the legislature to then be selected by the retired judges to be on the commission? How do you do that? 
that's something we can leave to enabling legislation next year, and we want to address. Um, if you're looking to help out write legislation, we need help on that. Uh, we'll also be asking some other experts for, for those kind of things as well. Um, and then there's also criteria that's missing. Like we had a really robust criteria proposal um, in SJ 274, the original plan that was recommended by the Citizens Committee, um, and and that just is pretty much silent on that. So we're leaving that to how a bill becomes a law next year. Um, which is interesting politically, but I'll put a pin in that. But let me tell you, one of the things we're really struggling with is how do we do, I don't want to, uh, to, to borrow Ken Cuccinelli's phrase, I don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire on the next step. I think we've got a pretty good plan here, not the best, but a pretty good one. I think it's the most significant reform that's ever passed a state legislature with regard to redistricting. Um, not that's gone around it, but through them. Uh, but I don't want us to draw lines based on what we think are good government principles and then have this horrible effect on the minority communities or the minority party or even the majority. We're not trying to you know, do what we think is fair and then have unintended consequences. So to that end, um, the folks at Tufts University have, I'll explain this, I know we're all lawyers here, but the math is tough here, but I'll explain this. The folks at Tufts University did a really interesting analysis that is only the tip of the iceberg on what we should be thinking about this. And basically what you've got, stand up here for a second so I can see. Um, what you've got is a, um, an analysis of uh, the black voting age population, uh, population you see on the on the left there and then these are just districts and they took basically the top 33 districts uh, in Virginia for black voting age population and what you'll see at the top is the red part that's the enacted plan that's what we live under today that is what the um, US Supreme Court and the Eastern District of Virginia have both said is an unconstitutional racial gerrymander we have new lines being proposed this month they'll argue again on the the issuance of those new lines and things like that, but that's where they are. And what you'll see in that is a big gap between 55% and what's 37%. That's the green marker there. Because um, you'll see the red dot goes all the way up there and then it precipitously drops um, way below that line. What's interesting is that most of the Congressional Black Caucus nationally is elected within that green line from districts with populations like that. So it's very strange when Virginia set a floor, an artificial floor of 55% um, to this. It's a racial quota and it's not, it's, I don't think it's going to last. But what's even more interesting about this to me is what did the Democratic plan, because they introduced one last August to remedy this problem, to remedy racial gerrymandering, what did their plan do for black communities? And that's the blue. And basically, you get one more black, likely black district. That's crazy to me in a state that's 20% to think that it would only be 13% of our, and this is just House of Delegates, but the same is true in the Senate. That's a, that's a weird place to be. And maybe they're just clustering artificially, right? Maybe just all the black people live in the city of Richmond and in the city of Hampton and Newport News, and they're just not spread out. So I asked Moon Duchin to do a, which I think is, would be unconstitutional, but I, perhaps where the court is headed, a race-blind draw of the map. I said, what would it look like for the black voting age population in these districts if you just did a race-blind, party-blind, like, so don't, don't say, oh, I didn't do it because they're black, I did it because they're Democrats. Race-blind, party-line, equal population, and respect for local boundaries, and that's the box and whiskers you see. So at the very least, you're looking at one more black district than even the Democratic plan, and possibly even two. The red, or, sorry, the yellow is a Princeton gerrymandering plan. I asked her for the same research on 
partisan balance, where if you respect local party, local municipal boundaries, how does it impact partisan performance? Because the Democrats are scared to death of respecting local municipal boundaries, and the Republicans are very excited about it. Um, I think they're both wrong, and turns out, by some, some preliminary analysis they've done at Tufts University, that they are. But I think this is what's next in redistricting reform. It's, I mean, these were 200,000, uh, sorry, 20,000 different maps that uh, Moon Duchin and her crew produced, and we're able to really do an analysis of how we're, we're doing here. So there's a, a lot of ripe areas for research and for going forward as to right now for how we fix it, very practical. Um, but I, I, I would keep your eye on this. So with that, I'll stop talking. Hank? Thanks. All right, I, I am just messing with my phone just to make sure that uh, I don't go over. Um, because Dick said, don't go over. So I was like, okay, fine, 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 fine. Fine. So, okay. So just sort of come with me a little bit. Uh, I, I, I could run you through a bunch of cases, but I actually don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. What, what I want to do is suggest that I don't necessarily have a problem with the redistricting commission. Right? A lot of really smart people dealt with that issue, including a number on this panel. But it's about thinking qualitatively about what we're doing. Why do we redistrict? And generally speaking, what do we want out of our legislature? Because a lot of what I'm hearing is just, just doesn't really matter in terms of what we want out of our, what we want out of our legislature. That's what I'm focusing on. That's what I want to know. So a couple, couple things in terms of going with me. Let me throw out a hypothetical situation. Let's assume that we are in a jurisdiction that is 45% Republican, sorry, 55% Republican, 45% Democratic. Let's assume we have 100 districts. What do we want our legislature to look like? What do we want our districts to look like? What's fair? Would it be fair to have 100 districts that are 55-45 Republican so that in most years the legislature will be 100% liberal Republicans? Does that sound fair? Very few people tend to view that, view that as being fair, even though it's hard to imagine that it's not fair if the lines happen to fall that way. Well, what would be more fair? Usually folks will say, well, it would be more fair if the legislature were 55-45 Republican. Say, okay. Just recognize it's entirely possible that you may need to gerrymander to get there. Are you okay with that? And as soon as I say gerrymander, people sort of stiffen up. And I go, it's all right, it's all good, it's all right, baby, it's all right. <laughs> because at the end of the day, what we're really looking for is a legislature that seems to represent us as a whole. That's what we have to start thinking about first. Don't tell me about districting first. Tell me what interests you want to see represented in the legislature first, and then we'll go from there. 
districts don't just show up. We draw lines. The question is, are we going to draw lines for good reasons or for bad? Now, I'm not suggesting that the Virginia Constitution is problematic with its contiguity and compactness requirement. I'd never say that. <laughs> not in this one. Not in front of you or even behind your back. <laughs> but recognize that depending on where you are in the state, that requirement may very well trigger some districts that appear to be packed because we don't tend to live where we live by accident. So go with me again. What if we were going to district this room right here, right now? Say there are about 35 people in this room, 35, 40 people in the room. Let's assume we're going to draw districts of five people. I think it's pretty fair to say that one district will be these five people. Why? Because we're right next to one another. We just happen to be here next. We don't just happen to be here next to one another. We're here for a reason. Right? My guess is there's a five-person crew right over there, and because you all keep looking at each other, my guess is you all know each other. <laughs> You're not there by luck. You're there on purpose. And in some ways, when we district based on geography, it's not luck. It's by design that's not necessarily by design of the legislature or by the district. So when we say we're going to district based on geography, we're already putting a little bit into the process. In some ways, drawing the lines and drawing the lines with a reason is what we ought to think about first. Not just the geography, but why we're drawing the lines, where we're drawing them, or how we want to see interests represented in the legislature. So that's sort of one of those pieces of the puzzle that I think we have to think about uh, sort of first, and I'm not sure we do that. So you may say, okay, 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 okay. Let's assume we have a 50-50 jurisdiction. Well, surely you can't complain about that. Far be it for me to complain. So let's assume we have a 50-50 district, and we're lucky. We have the 50 and the 50, the R's and D's. We're going to forget the I's. I know people like to say, I'm an independent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Who'd you vote for last time? So-and-so. Who'd you vote for the time for that? So-and-so. Do you tend to vote for Democrats? Yeah, well. Do you tend to vote for Republicans? Yeah, well. So I, okay. okay. I'm not saying there aren't any eyes, but let's just assume that folks kind of are leaning in one direction or the other. They just like to say they're independent. So let's go 50-50. Do you want 100 districts that are 50-50 so that in a wave year, you almost completely flip the legislature. Maybe you do. Maybe you like Vegas. <laughs> Maybe you like putting it all on Black 12, right? But at the end of the day, it's not clear that that's what we want to do with our legislature because it's not clear that's what we want to do with our state. Maybe instead what you want are some number of 50-50 districts and some number of districts that really aren't 50-50. Or maybe you just want the districts to just fall out wherever they happen to fall out. I'm not really for that. Right? My deal is that we need to think about what we want out of our legislature. In some ways, think about what, we, what interests we want represented in the legislature, and then go behind and ask, how do we generally district? 
not necessarily going for the inside incumbent protection racket. I'm going to use that because that's what it happened. Because that's what happened, right? It was an inside incumbent protection racket, but it was also the Virginia way because that's how we do things in Virginia sometimes. So in terms of thinking about what it is we want to get out of our legislature, I think if we do that first, a lot of other stuff arguably falls, falls to the side. In that vein, a couple things we want to consider. How do we deal with what we call traditional redistricting principles? So let me just suggest one and, and sort of walk through some issues or some problems with it. We like to think about having districts that follow subdivision lines. So we kind of like to keep counties together if possible. Right? We like to keep cities together, we like to keep counties together. Now we know we can't do it because we have a one person, one vote requirement which gets operationalized as each district has to have the same number of people in it. Okay. But there's a bigger question you need to ask. If you're familiar with Richmond, you'll get where I'm going. The west end of Richmond and I realize that for folks who live in the west end of the city of Richmond, it ends at the city border. I understand that because that's just how those folks are. Good people, that's just how they are. But for most of us, when we talk about the west end of Richmond, we're talking about the west end of the city of Richmond and the west end of Henrico County. Right? Because demographically, it doesn't really matter where the line's drawn. Both areas are pretty similar. How about the east end of Henrico County and the east end of Richmond? Same thing. The lines don't really matter so much. The areas look the same. So the question we need to ask ourselves, should we district all of Henrico County together, even though Eastern Henrico and Western Henrico are completely different demographically? Should we district all of Henrico together and all of Richmond together, or should we consider splitting it so that Eastern Henrico, Western Henrico, sorry, so that Eastern, Eastern Henrico, Eastern, Eastern City of Richmond are in one district, Western Henrico, Western City of Richmond are in one district. Now, I'm not saying which one we have to do, but let's not act as though saying, gee, let's use our traditional lines that that will necessarily get better representation because people who happen to live in the same county are getting the same representative. That's just not necessarily the case. What I'm asking that we do is some hard thinking about things before we talk about independent redistricting commissions. Who should do that hard thinking? To be honest, it ought to be the legislature. Why? Because that's where the Constitution puts the responsibility for redistricting. Part of my problem with an independent redistricting commission is the fact that it is an abdication of the responsibility of the legislature. And when the legislature says, we just can't do our jobs, then they need to go. They don't need people to bail them out. They just need to go. So that's one piece of the puzzle. Let me say I have one more piece of the puzzle in terms of the things I think we ought to think about uh, before we start laying down lines. A lot of people think that we ought to redistrict the Congress, congressional districts, the same way that we redistrict state legislative districts. There's just no reason to believe that that's the case. None whatsoever. Why? Because it's entirely possible that the state of Virginia wants something different out of their representatives to Congress than they want out of the people who are going to go to the state legislature. Well, why would that be the case? Well, how about this? We like to talk about the Virginia way, which historically has tended to mean that we are kind of centrist. What would 11 congressmen and congresswomen who think kind of the same in terms of centrism, what could they do in Congress? 
it's possible that on some matters they might very well be the tipping point. I'd really like for Virginia to be the tipping point. Why? Because if you have to go to those 11 folks and negotiate with them, Virginia probably comes out better at the end of the day. Now, I realize that there's some people who may well say, my goodness, that's horrible. Why would you want Congress to work that way? Okay, fine. I don't want Congress to work that way. But I might want that because it's good for Virginia to send people to Congress who might actually be able to get legislation that's good for Virginia. Because, of course, if it's good for Virginia, I'm sure it will be good for the country as well. Do you instead want to district the congressional districting the same way that you district state legislative districts? I don't know, particularly if what you might get are 11 congressmen and congresswomen who are all over the map and all over the board, who can't necessarily come together on issues that will be particularly helpful to Virginia. I'm not saying we have to go in one direction or the other. What I'm saying is we need to think about that first. And I'm not sure we've done the hard thinking on that. Actually, I'm sure we haven't done the hard thinking on that yet. Once we do that hard thinking, hey, I'm down for what folks want to do with independent redistricting commissions because I trust the people who are in the room. Right. But until we do some of that hard thinking, I, I, I just don't think we're, we're ready there. I'm a little worried about it. So in that vein, you know, I could go on, but I'll just stop. Uh, I'll stop there and yield the balance of my time to Rebecca Green. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, well, first of all, um, let me thank Lindsay Fisher and Professor Howard um, and the Journal of Law and Politics for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Um, so I plan to address three topics this afternoon. The first is the role of transparency in redistricting generally. Um, and then I thought I would talk a little bit about some um, tools to evaluate redistricting maps that are going to come onto the scene in 2021. Um, and then finally, I thought I'd just talk a little bit about minority representation and Virginia's proposed uh, commission model. So starting off with transparency and redistricting, um, under Virginia law, uh, under, particularly under its open records statute, the General Assembly sets the rules governing public access to committee meetings. Um, and legislative caucuses are exempt from open records law. What that translates to, um, what, it, what it has translated to in the past, is that when Virginia redistricts, um, there is no role, there is no sort of formal transparency afforded to the, the, the process, other than a slew of public meetings that, that the legislature has held in past rounds, um, kind of out of the goodness of its heart. Um, and so what that has essentially translated to is um, in our state, as Brian um, mentioned, last, the last round in 2011 was a bipartisan gerrymander that took very little public input as it you know, sort of went through its course. It basically just sort of you know, handed, they, they handed each other um, their jobs and, and went on uh, along their merry way. Um, there were two interesting features of the 2011 round um, from a transparency perspective. One is, as Brian mentioned, Governor McDonnell was interested in redistricting reform, and he actually appointed an independent advisory commission to um, take public comment and to come up with a report, which, th which they did, and which the General Assembly promptly totally ignored. Um, so that was, uh, you know, you could say that that was sort of a transparency provision in the sense that it, you know, got people interested in redistricting and, so, you know, there were several uh, meetings held throughout the state where people voiced concerns, um, but effectively had no power and, you know, no, no impact. 
Uh, the second reform in 2011 was the um, independent redistricting competition, where a bunch of colleges um, got together. It was um, 13 colleges and law schools presenting 68 maps. Uh, University of Virginia, both the college and the law school had teams, I believe, and I know um, we, we had a team at William & Mary Law School. Brian was on it. It was one of the winning maps. Um, I think launched his career in many ways, I like to think. Um, but, you know, that process was interesting. It got a lot of people involved. It got a lot of people to think hard about the very difficult issues um, that Professor Chambers was mentioning. Um, but it also had zero impact. N none of the plans, you know, we actually, I think they did actually introduce a couple of the winning maps um, as sort of resolutions in the General Assembly, but per for all intents and purposes, um, it had nothing to do with kind of the backroom, you know, glad handing that was happening in the process in 2011. So, um, you know, there's no, there's no constitutional command for transparency in Virginia. Uh, in the redistricting process, and the General Assembly didn't, uh, didn't do much um, to ensure that the public could see what was going on. Um, so I think, let's see, is my slide presentation there? Go it is. over mine in the back. What's that? Let's go forward, too. Go forward. Oh, no. That's what I wanted to show them. Yeah, so this, um, this is the existing constitutional provision that governs uh, redistricting in Virginia right now. And as you can see, there's nothing in there that mentions transparency. It doesn't call for a transparent process uh, at all. And I'll show you, this is the language that, that is part of the proposed amendment to Virginia's Constitution. This isn't the whole thing. These are the, these are the provisions that, are in, that would be in the Constitution that would require transparency um, in the process. Uh, and so as you can see, you go from nothing to something. So to the extent that you believe that transparency is important, um, and to the extent that you believe that something that's in the Constitution is going to be followed um, by those who uh, draw the lines during the next round, then this is, um, this is an improvement if you care about transparency. Um, one of the big questions, one of the hardest questions I think to answer is, will transparency provisions in a Constitution or even in a statute prevent backroom dealing in the redistricting process. Um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you can have all the public meetings and all the public input that you want, but really people are just still going in the back room and, you know, do the deals. I um, mean, will this really prevent it? And I think that's a hard and unknowable question, um, but I like to believe that an independent commission with at least some citizen participation would prevent some of the kinds of backroom deals that you see. Um, which sort of leads me to my next point, um, the next topic I wanted to address, which is um, oversight tools that will be on hand in 2021 that we've never had before. Um, so I have a bunch of different examples to show you, but they kind of fall into several big, um, sort of several big categories. Um, the first are public districting tools, and we had these in the 2011 round. That's what we used um, on our teams to draw maps for the 2011. Round, um, but I think they're going to be on steroids in the next um, in the next round. In the sense that I think they're going to be incredibly easy and user friendly. Um, and I think anyone's going to be able to jump on and use the same data that legislators and independent commissions use. Uh, and I think because they're going to be so easy to, to use, and because there's so much interest in this topic, I think there's going to be a lot of people who get on and make their own maps. Um, I, I think. What do I have? What did I show you? This is um, District Builder. This is just sort of an example of some of the 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 um, the um, tools that will be out there. This is, um, this is an interesting one. This is already in place for um, local districts in California, so you can jump on and build maps for local districts. Just sort of an example of sort of the do-it-yourself world. Um, this is a little bit more, this is a commercial product. Um, 
But you can see that you, you can, you know, there are going to be tools available to members of the public for free that allow you to create plans and evaluate them to sort of see how you do on a number of measures, like how partisan is your plan? Does your plan, you know, have a good um, respect for minority voters? You know, the, you know, all kind like what is your efficiency gap score for your plan? There's all kinds of different um, different ways that you're going to be able to create and evaluate your plans. Um, I thought I would also just show you. I think I have. Yeah, I thought I would also just show you plan score. This is a really amazing tool um, put out by. Oh, geez, where's where's Eric? Teach. I can't remember. In Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So. Um, this effectively, you can take any plan that you build and you put it through plan score and it sort of gives you a metric for how well your plan did in terms of partisan bias or um, you know, what's your efficiency gap score. And so you can actually now, anytime anyone proposes a plan, which we did actually for the Bethune Hill districts, that this, these are the remedial districts for the racial gerrymandering case that's underway right now in Virginia, there were lots of proposed maps and people put them through plan score to sort of see very quickly, are these good maps or are these not good maps? And those kinds of tools did not exist before. And so we're going to be able to have a much more sophisticated conversation um, in 2021 than we've ever been able to have. Um, because in the past, only a very few number of people had the skills and access to the data to draw maps. Um, and now that's going to be really democratized. I think it's going to have a really big impact. Um, what else did I want to say about that? I think that's my last slide there. Oh, yeah. This is, the, this is the Tufts project. I just wanted to mention that there are mathematicians hard at work. They're going to be able to tell us a lot about the different maps and, and the different characteristics of proposed maps in 2021. Um, so I think you shouldn't underestimate mathematic, mathematicians and computer scientists' ability to help us sort of see through the fog. So I think oversight tools are going to have a really big impact in 2021, and they're going to prevent a lot of the shenanigans that we've seen in the past. At least that's my optimistic view. So finally, I thought I would just say a few words about minority representation and the commission model that's being proposed in Virginia. Um, there are two really big questions when you think about how to redistrict um, in a way that's fair to minority communities. Um, the first with commissions is how are the interests of minorities represented on the commission itself, right? Like, are there, are there interests being represented by the people who sit on the commission? And the second question is, what mechanisms are there to protect minority voters in the line drawing process, that is, through the criteria that the commission applies? So there's sort of those two questions. On the first question, um, representation on the commission, um, when we were kind of coming up with our proposal for what, how Virginia should redistrict um, and how it should constitute its commission, um, we toyed with the idea of reserving slots on the commission for minority members as a, as a means of you know, res representing minority interests. But that was quickly discarded because you know, that's essentially a quota that, that violates potentially the Constitution and that doesn't seem like a way to go. So we decided on language that was sort of um, uh, oratory. In other words, we, we said you know, we, we directed the judges who were selecting the committee to take um, the, racial Virginia, uh, sorry, the racial diversity of Virginia into account. That was sort of the way that we sort of, we sort of framed it. Um, there's nothing in the proposal that was passed uh, by the General Assembly a couple weeks ago um, that does the same thing. There's, there's no sort of language there that, that makes any mention of diversity on the commission. I think the only way that you get diversity on the commission is through the political process and the idea that it's, it's highly likely that at least one political party will see diversity as an important value um, and, and sort of drive, drive the composition of the commission um, in that way. So um, that sort of remains to be seen and it, it could be that during, through some kind of implementing legislation um, that issue is able to be addressed. 
Um, the second problem is um, how to protect minority uh, voting rights through the process or through the criteria that are applied. Um, and let's see. This um, is the proposed amendment. This is the language of the proposed amendment um, that's, um, that's under consideration. This is what passed a couple weeks ago. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of this where practicable language because as, it, as you read it, you think that the, your command is essentially to protect minority voting rights, but only, only as much as you want to, essentially, right? It seems like it's kind of discretionary. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it seems sort of dismissive, potentially, of minority voting rights. Um, but that interpretation runs counter to federal law in the sense that um, the, there is explicit mention of having to comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act, right? Um, so, so it doesn't make sense to in one sentence say, um, you know, comply with federal law, but only comply with federal law where practicable, right? So, so it doesn't, it would be repetitive, essentially, if that's how you interpreted the language. Um, instead, um, let's see, I think I have, did I do that right? So there's sort of, there's sort of the, the requirement that you comply with federal law, and then it sort of adds this other sort of additional potentially um, requirement that you do it, that you do so even more than you're required to by federal law. And that's important because a lot of people think that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is on the chopping block, i.e. that Justice Thomas, who's been gunning to um, kind of gut Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, um, at least as it applies to redistricting, um, so meaning that it may go away. Um, and if that's the case, then having language in Virginia's Constitution that pays homage to the idea that you provide where practicable um, opportunities for racial and ethnic communities to elect their candidates of choice could insulate Virginia if something did happen to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act um, going forward. So in that sense, um, you could look at this language not as being dismissive of minority voting rights, but rather actually providing some extra fodder for legislators and commission members who want to do more to protect minor minority voting rights. So I guess um, with that, I will stop. Okay, thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> we, we have a few minutes, I think, uh, remaining, and I'm happy to open the floor up to questions. Yes, for when you might indicate to whom you're question is directed. Thank you. <clears throat> My question is for Mr. Uh, Gaber and Cannon. Uh, could you answer <laughs> Professor Chambers' prompt for your organizations? Uh, what does a fair districting uh, system look like? Is it one that maximizes uh, competitiveness, that uh, you know, reflects partisan uh, proportional representation, racial uh, representation, minimizes the efficiency gap? Um, it's kind of, there's a lot of different ways you could have a fair system, but you know, have different, completely different results based on that starting prompt. So what's your organization's positions? Well, uh, in both the Whitford case and uh, now in the North Carolina case that are up at the Supreme Court, uh, we have advocated for the efficiency gap partisan fairness score as a, sort of a, a benchmark for how to look at this. Um, and so certainly from CLC's perspective that, you know, that is kind of the primary uh, tool that we would advocate for to, to view it. So I, I think uh, uh, Professor Chambers here propose, proposes, you know, the, the, what do you want your legislature to represent? And I think the answer to that question for us is the communities that are electing them, right? Like, so I think the, the way I would frame it is, 
let's keep our communities together and let them make the decision as to who represents them. Now, some of our communities are going to be deep blue in Northern Virginia, and others, if you go further southwest out this way, they'll be deep red. And plenty of places like where I live will be purple, and that's just what the community is. If you get politicians to take their foot off the neck of competition, which is what they really do when they gerrymander, is they're trying to make as few competitive seats as possible, then you'll naturally get more purple where it'll be, but it doesn't also preclude the you know southwest part of Virginia from electing a deep red conservative, because that's exactly who would, would represent them. And I think that's what you're hoping to be. I think the other problem to the 55-45 prompt, which I think is a great way to look at this, um, might be asking redistricting to solve too much. I don't think redistricting reform can, can fix the problems in our representative democracy, all of them at least. Um, if we wanted to go to that route, I think you need to look into Fair Vote, and, uh, which is an organization that advocates for multi-member districts and ranked choice voting to more accurately reflect that 55-45. But for our purposes, it's just keep the communities together and let them make the call as to who they said.